this is Welcome to this brand new spaced out episode of Wart Celluloid. I'm your co-host Jack. I'm Mike. I'm my own. I'm the host of the show, Jack Rourke, with my uh, co-host Williams. How's it going, Chandler? Uh, hope you're doing better than I uh, than I did that opening. <laughs> it's all good, Jack. I'm uh, doing good here on this, you know, on this sunny Monday afternoon. Um, got a good bit of homework. Uh, to do later this afternoon, but uh, looking forward to this conversation. How about yourself? I am doing pretty all right, man. And quite frankly, I think this is going to be the loosest, most I mean, chill episode we've done yet. Oh, out, we are doing well, <laughs> chill. We are doing not just a movie, but also a commentary track for a movie, which is relatively unheard of around these parts. I'd I'd reckon. Not only are we going to be covering or in a seminal horror classic and arguably the best film of John Carpenter, Chandler, which film would I be referring to? We'll be covering The Thing. 100,000 years ago, it found its way into our galaxy. Trapped in the frozen wasteland of Antarctica, it could not escape. Now the men of Station 4 have made a monumental discovery. An alien creature had frozen, but not to death. place to hide. this is not our first time uh, watching this film, and hopefully for you listeners, this isn't your first time either. But, yeah, we're going to be honest. We're, we're basically just doing this just to cheat our own rule, rules. We've wanted to cover the thing for a long, long time. So, uh, yeah, this is just our excuse to do so. Yeah, this is probably the most, quote, mainstream film. Uh, it's probably the covered. most famous. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's the one movie I guarantee you anyone listening to this has probably seen. Yes. Like, I would bet money on it. It is yeah. iconic at this point. Quite iconic. Yeah. I it's had so not seen it. It's iconic that even its story of its initial failure is well-trodden territory. Like, every. Yeah, I had not seen it until I uh, got to college, and um, you actually showed it to me. And, uh, I, I learned you the Blu-ray, like... didn't I? Like, the old Universal one, not the Shout Factory one, which... No, I still don't have it, and yeah, I'm annoyed about that, too. Yeah, um, but uh, I mean, like, in our circles, our film uh, nerd circles, uh, it was always talked about, and so pretty interested to check it out, and you uh, loaned me the Blu-ray, and uh, I saw it. That was 
about a year ago, and uh, this was my first time rewatching it, but we uh, rewatched it with the commentary on, so uh, definitely um, insightful. And the, the commentary is as funny as everyone says. Um, yeah. And oh, God. Wholesome, One of the best commentary tracks I've ever heard. It's so much. It, just imagine, like, two grumpy old men just trying to make each other laugh for and for two hours straight. It's the best. Yeah, it's not even that they're grumpy. They're just old men just, like, yeah. you know, lo- looking back on like, their career. Yeah, we blew up hell. Yeah, we blew up a helicopter, so what? <laughs> and mostly Kurt Russell laughing, which is the most fun part. Yeah, and they're just talking about, like, you know, drinking beer on set and, like, having a fun time in uh, British Columbia where they filmed uh, yeah. the majority of it. And, and partially a part of Alaska. Yeah, there's like, a lot of re- we, reminiscing. Of the, worst, the worst part of this location was you couldn't get any beer. <laughs> yeah, was said. And also... Also, man, it's just so much fun to hear him laugh during, like, all the really, really terrifying bits. Which, it doesn't make him a sadist, in my opinion. I think it's like, oh, wait, that was a really fun day to shoot on set. Oh, my. Yeah, it seems like I had a lot of fun um, shooting this, and I think I, that just makes me... Which is interesting, considering how much, how miserable shooting in the cold is. Yeah, and it, it looks like a pretty harsh environment, um... And they said it was pretty harsh. Uh, they had to do like, um, like relay teams to get supplies and um. Like, they had like really two helicopters, out. two flamethrowers, like a bunch of double. Well, I think like the fake yeah. blood grows at one point. I will cover this later, but some of the special effects totally would not have flied today. Like, considering it's not like that they the, would have flied, just they wouldn't be getting made. Or yeah, made the way they like, were. how Kurt Russell like actually threw his own explosives and. It kind of, like, blew up. And they used a real flamethrower for certain bits. Yeah. Yep. One um, of which was real, one of which was a dummy one that they had to have for safety precautions. Ah, uh, the 80s. Ah, uh, the 80s. But, uh, my first note is, uh, you told me that the font was... Albertus Medium, which, right, the, which I base, we all know it as the John Carpenter font at this point. It's been used in so much stuff, but for me, it, right, every, considering how it's in almost every one of his title sequences, it's the one I associate most with. Yeah, and I think it's just funny and awesome that you know the name of the font. I, I'm kind of a nerd for typography and that kind of right, thing, because, right, because I lo- just love see, right, seeing, like, how words are clustered to get, right, together and the way they can right, just bring personality through, like, the simplest of things. Like, in fact, uh, one of the things that I really like doing with uh, whenever Chandler and I go record shopping is, like, seeing what, what fonts are the most popular throughout decades. You'd be yeah, shocked certainly. how much Euro-style makes appearances over the years. And just, like, how, you know, different fonts can evoke different tones or moods. Yeah. Um, it's, Funny it's, thing, literally it's cool. one of the first things you t- that comes up when you type Albertus font into in Google is John Carpenter. Uh-huh. That is how famous he or in this association is with him. Um, and speaking yeah, I... of typography, well, that brings me to one of my favorite stories about the movie. Chandler, are you familiar with how they did the opening title sequence? You kind of explained it to me while we were watching it, but, uh, please, go ahead. Okay, allow me, allow me to set the scene, listeners. Okay, pretend you can see me right now. All it involves is a trash bag, a, or a cigarette lighter, a fish tank, an animation cell, and a spotlight underneath underneath it and uh, they put the animation cell on one part of the fish tank and they put the trash bag on the very top right top set it ablaze and bam it looks like it's burning through the screen that is the kind of low tech or in kind of like on the or nose resourcefulness that i kind of aspire to it, absolutely it, 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 looks, it looks awesome 
it's so low or in low tech and it's so, or in so inexpensive, but man, does it look cool. Oh yeah. Um, I have a huge appreciation for practical effects and yep. in partially due and to this film. This They're might be yep, this might be the greatest achievement in the history of practical effects. I, mean, I, I could agree with that, yeah. Which is more astounding because Rob Bottin was 22 when he did all of these, when he designed and like brought these to life. I will repeat, he was two years older than we are now. Yes, which is very which impressive. Is and just, insane to me. Yeah. I can't tell I'm if sure... that's the kind of thing that makes me like, man, do I, or do I want to step on my game? Or I should quit entirely because I'm never going to be that good. No, I think I think she's different with the '80s. Like, I'm sure you don't have to have. Um, I'm sure you didn't have to have as many. Uh, like, I'm there sure there wasn't like an an importance on resumes or. There wasn't like you know, so many hoops to jump through. Yeah, I mean, it's granted. This wasn't Rob Bottin's first movie. He did The Howling like a year before. He already worked with Carpenter on The Fog back in 1980. So it's not like this is new territory for either of them. Of them but still. It's it's the skill that really takes me aback. Like someone this young, young just like let completely loose, and man, it is a thing to behold. A quote thing. Haha. <laughs> thing. <laughs> Back to the actual conversation. Anyway, this was a movie or in a remake that was trying to get off the ground for a long time. Time mostly throughout the seventies. Toby Hooper almost did it. Sam Peckinpah almost did it. And speaking of Ernan said chaos, John Landis. Walter Hill, Michael Ritchie almost did it, even, which is probably the weirdest choice considering how he pretty much never did a horror movie. Nice. I'm not familiar with hardly any Michael of those Ritchie names. Michael Ritchie did stuff like Fletch and like the Bad News Bears, mostly comedies. Okay, okay. Yeah, but I, don't, I remember like pretty much all the scripts that Rain went, Rain went through beforehand were just basically just a less interesting version of the 50s movie, which the 50s movie is fine. It's one of the better sci-fi sci like B movies of its time, but yeah, it doesn't hold a candle to that. this, and it's definitely not that great of an adaptation of the original short story either. Which I should bring up finally got back into in, um, circulation a couple of years ago because it finally got published again. It has. I don't think it had been, it had been back in the in the trade since uh, since it originally showed up in the in Weir I think Weird Tales. I know it was written by John W. Campbell Jr., who was like foundational for. For science fiction literature, but but I don't remember like specifically when it was published. You said the TV movie was a I know the the fifties movie 50s, was a TV movie. You know, I mean, there's parts of it that do feel like a TV movie, so don't blame you. And funny enough, it shows up on the TV in the background of Halloween. So uh, yeah, maybe that was Carpenter giving the game away early. Oh, nice. That's that's pretty funny. Yep. Anyway, anyway uh, the original it makes thing me. It makes me okay. feel hopeful that there are, um, you know, that there's good source material uh, from the 20th century to look back on. And there's a um, there's a read. lot of good, great source material, some of which is lost, some of which isn't. And it's just I think it's just up to us to make sure it stays pre preserved in some fashion or another. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me want to go back and read the old, um, you know, science fiction mm -hmm. literatures uh, and novels, short stories, whatnot. Yep. Um, sci fi is the best sci fi. <laughs> I will stand by this opinion. Anyway, I think the the big difference between the two is ultimately the approach. Like the standard, the original is very a, a very standard fifties monster movie. Mainly, it's basically just a Frankenstein monster, monster that's like spawns from vegetables or something. Look, it's been a long time since I've seen the fifties one, so I just thinking generally other than the fact that Howard Hawks, which is one of John Carpenter's biggest influences, 
when he was also a producer on it? Yeah, I've heard his name um, a lot, uh, and uh, but I, I haven't really got around to like um, Assault on Precinct Thirteen is literally just a mix or a mix of like the Warriors and in Rio Bravo when you get down to it. Interesting. I, I mean, he he his name is always brought up in a you know certain directors um, interviews that I listen to uh, in terms of like influence and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I've been I've been meaning to. Check out his filmography. Anyway, anyway, it went through or the back to like the main thing. The script went through a lot of iterations. Eventually, Burt Lancaster's kid was hired to rewrite it, and that's the version that ended up on the screen. And I mean, yeah, they, I mean, they basically like, okay, let's get back, right down to basics. Let's get in the story. Like, how are we going to show this on screen and show it right? And it wasn't like a straight adherence to the original story either, but more like, what? I mean, let's try and push this further and like really set make a name for this. I respect that. I do too. I respect the the revisions too. Yeah, yeah. I like, I like that. I again, this has been brought up again. A, a reason I was hesitant to talk about this was because how much are we really going to add to this conversation? It's the thing, for God's sake! It's one of the greatest horror movies ever made. It's one of the best science fiction movies ever made. It's John Carpenter's best movie and the one he where it holds in uh, his highest regard, even if the initial reception really, really burned him. And I don't blame him because. Man, what the fuck were people thinking when they first saw this back then? I'm sure some people liked it. Yeah, a few, or a few, but mostly... And I know it's so easy to blame E.T. because it came out the same week, but I also blame, well, one, it feels weird releasing a movie like this in June in the first place, but also... Oh, just yeah. generally the people's expectations. Like, I remember... Oh, God, there's a quote from the, one of the Universal executives at the time that just made me roll my eyes. And it is as a... As I quote, more like the th- right, we should see the monster die at the end with like a big orchestral swirl, something along those lines, and it just like, ugh, deeply beleaguered sigh in my head. And we'll we'll get to the ending um later, which I do have. It's a great end, great ending, and it, what, there's a reason, and it's inspired so much debate over the last fuck almost forty years. Yeah, I guess so. Well. Should we just tell people what this is about? As if they don't know already. Yeah, go ahead. A bunch of scientists and military types are stuck in an Antarctic research base. An alien manages to sneak on. It can imitate any life form perfectly, and they just gotta discover before it's too late which one of them is the thing. That's all you need to know. That's Yeah, no, that's pretty much the entire simple, simple guess. story and premise, I guess. Yeah. Um... I love the setting. It's a it's a very unique setting, and um, you know a place that it, where it's a like character setting as character. I would say. I agree. I agree. I and I always it, admire when uh, I love it when piece. movies take you know, take full advantage of their setting and and make it not just a char- character, but it makes the compelling argument like this only works if it's set in this place at this time. Yeah, I I really appreciate and respect when that is done. And uh, if I may go back earlier, this is a movie that is kind of famous for, or for, and not just because it's one of, regarded as one of the only good horror remakes, which there are others. I mean, besides the thing in the fly, right, fly, but I can't really name them offhand without doing a ton of googling. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that in the middle of a show. We are professionals around here. We are I, professionals. <laughs> I believe every word that man just said because it's exactly <laughs> what I wanted to hear. God, I love Space Ghost Coast to Coast. Anyway, 
back to the thing. It's a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff. It's a rushing nesting doll of knockoffs because it's a remake of an adaptation of a short story that only got made because Alien got made, which that only got made because Jaws got made and made a lot of money. So Wow. And yet, it still resulted in one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah, that 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 happens sometimes, I guess. Sometimes sometimes it's the the right money where it ends up in the right hands, and they end up getting the craft something truly special, which doesn't happen too often nowadays. But I appreciate it every time it does. Fortunately, that's the case. But I have to agree with you. It is what it is. And speaking of the film's relation with modern movie history, uh, shall we get to the Ennio Morricone score, or the Ennio Morricone Alan Howard score? Since considering how it was kind of half and half. Have like a lot of his stuff ended up on like in the cutting room floor and got repurposed for drum roll, please. Flate. Indeed, the hateful like. Which man, you can tell sometimes when you compare like certain cues. Like it's not like I'm not gonna downplay Morricone's association with the mo- movie. Like if you can, if you look out for it, you can hear his score. But not all of it was used, and some of it was replaced with sta- fairly standard Carpenter like electronic tones and whatnot. Yeah, but it's it's a good it's a good mix. Um, it it fits. Yeah, it 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 certainly fits. Um, and it's not like you are totally aware of um, you know the the it's compilation between electronic and uh you know orchestral, um, it's, which is something I really appreciate. And uh, there wasn't necessarily like a solid theme. Um, like other than that, wasn't. dun dun, dun dun. Yeah. Wah, wah, dun, dun. But I wouldn't consider it like selling itself as such a yeah. theme, you know. Um, it's distinct while not, while not like make, being intrusive or yeah, or make, yeah. What, which is how I believe film scores should be. Insert Christopher Nolan soundtrack go burr meme here. <laughs> uh, I, I kid, I like Christopher Nolan just fine. Yeah. Anyway, so there's so many little things about this I like. The lens, God, the lens, anamorphic lens flares. I don't think they've ever looked better than in this movie. They're just amazing, and again, some of which are accomplished with literal flares. So, yes, sure. and they they just look they just look so cool. Um, and I, you don't really see that much like anamorphic. Um, it's like gushing anamorphic lens flares. This film, yeah, outside um, of maybe outside of maybe J.J. Abrams, and even then, I'm not. I think he's starting to be starting to downplay those in recent years. Yeah, I would agree. Um, but man, they're just so distinct and uh, just so beautiful. Very satisfying. Of distinct, of distinct, simple imagery. The poster, which I actually have a T-shirt of and wore it when we saw when we watched this again. And uh, you know the story behind that? No. Uh, Drew Struzan, one of the great, one of the great, great poster artists. You've, or if you don't know movies, you've seen his posters. And even if you don't, you know that style. I was uh, contacted at like the very last minute, or and was sent into a briefing where he learned basically nothing about the film. Film like he didn't even see any stills from it, and had like, hey, give us a poster in twenty four hours because we need to get something out here pronto. So basically, he had a, or his wife take a picture of him in a winter coat, standing in that pose pose and just like whip that off over the course of a night and then just set it up to them the following morning. And wow. what we have is probably the most iconic horror movie poster of all time. Yeah, yeah. Like now that I think about it, it doesn't really relate all that much to the film, 
but it but just it looks fits awesome. so well. And yeah, it, it does. It's so much stink. Hmm. Right. Yeah. And speaking of radar work about this, I found out something really cool or really cool while researching this. Not only was noted sci-fi author Richard Matheson almost in going to write this, Mike Klug from Marvel Comics, and he also worked with Ralph Bakshi on Wizard. He did some of the designs in the original storyboards for the thing, and go look, seek those out if you can, because those are, wow, it looks like the Bill Sienkiewicz, like, New Mutant stuff, like, like all those jagged edges and everything, there's, like, details within details and entrails and, like, twitching and nervous convulsing, and, God, it just looks so cool. Yeah, you should, you should meet them, and, uh, very impressive. All right. I like how on the uh, director's commentary, they talked so much about alcohol, which I yeah, think is drink- fun. I'm pretty sure they might have been trashed while recording that. I w- would not be surprised. <laughs> I can't confirm or deny that because I, do- I heard that offhand from a semi-reliable sor- source, but uh, yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if that was true. They were talking about like how they couldn't get beer from um, I mean, Alaska. Alaska. Yeah, from because Alaska. Were, because I think like the closest like like gas station or whatever was like two hours away. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember we're in one of the sta- the we're in the uh, main station, where like the Norwegian station is basically just the American station, but just like burn. They filmed that stuff later, I think. I don't know. Again, I've heard a lot of stories about this movie. Me and it's and it's fitting because it's a wor- movie we're talking about. With behind the scenes stuff, just because if you just respect film crafts, regardless of whether you're a genre fan, you kind of have to respect the thing. Yeah, it was just, I mean, it's so impressive that they accomplished so much um, and, God, in such acting, creative ways. Yeah. And the act earning, like, one of the things that I think, so, I think one of the things that makes the scariest is a lot of people have pointed this out before, but this is one of the few famous horror movies where there is not a single stupid character in this movie. And yet, acting logically, still gets them all killed in the end. That's fucking terrifying. Imagine, like, doing the best anyone could conceivably do in a terrifying situation like this and still end up being screwed. Yeah, and I love how... I mean, like, back to what you said, uh, none of the characters being stupid, they're all, like, well-written and distinct. Even the ones that don't get to talk all that very much. Yeah, yeah, they have distinct character traits and, uh, like, types. So, So many quotable lines, too. Mac wants the flamethrower. Mac wants the what? Now move. He said that's what he said. Now move. John, damn it. That used to be a bit between me and my brother whenever when my dad needed like help in the garage or something. We and uh, actually the first time I saw this was I remember Robert Rodriguez had a cable network called El Ray, and funny enough, he actually had a series called The Director's Chair on there that was just interviews with directors. The first one being John Carpenter. If you can find that on, I'm pretty sure it's floating around on YouTube. If you're interested. Did check out that interview. It's really, it's a good like or summation of his career. If you're new to John Carpenter, in his work, I'll but, check it uh, out. Anyway, yeah. The thing I thought was because that's how I first saw the thing was because it was one of the few big cable networks that. I mean, it edited content during the day, but what if it showed it at night? All, all was fair game. So, my brother was having a sleep or in a sleepover one night. I was just downstairs minding my own business. I watched the thing. Then a couple of his friends came down because they were like, ah, "Fuck it, this is too loud and boring." And they were hooked the whole time. So I'm like, I felt like kind of like a cool uncle. Like, yeah, I'm, go- I'm showing kids R-rated monster movies. I'm awesome. I was like 15 at the time. So this was my version of edgy, I guess. Nice. That's funny. Yeah. I saw a lot of movies. Half of the movies I've seen in my life, I've either seen through TV reruns or, re- or renting it from the library. 
I respect that. I respect that you, you know, use your l local library. I'm, yeah, I, that is a story for our time, though. So, anyway, Carpenter, Chandler, if I'm not mistaken, this and Halloween are the only films of his scene, right? Yes, actually. Yeah. Uh, he, he will forever remain one of my favorite filmmakers and just generally one of my filmmaking heroes because the guy does so much for so little, and even when he's given the most here, he does 10,000 times what most filmmakers do in their entire careers, let alone one movie. Yeah, I definitely want to check out more um, more of his stuff after watching this. And, uh, and here's the thing. It's not just that his movies are cool it. either and that they're visually inventive. It's that they're smart, too. Right, dude, even stuff that doesn't have a lot of on its mind, like Assault on Precinct 13, or even Christine, is still vigorously well-crafted. Like, yeah, like good good genre films, I think are really yeah. Like I'm str I'm struggling to, to think now. of any director that has had as good of a run in such a succinct period of time as John Carpenter did in the eighties. Like eighty, I think eighty three. Spielberg maybe. Who? Spielberg. Perhaps. I'd have to go through it again, right again. But still, Carp it's the consistency and like distinctly him without be being like flashy on on this big important pompous auteur type. The guy, and I think he pointed this out when we were watching the commentary was he is incredibly blunt. Yeah, just like the typical um, old man, like, I guess. But, but like yep. in, in a, in a He's like, I just care about cigarettes and video games. In a nice way, though. Yeah, he's really? cool. I mean, I like you. I like that he just basically was like, "Yeah, I'm I'm retired. I'm cool with that." Like, he, a lot of modern interviews just are so much fun to read with him. Nice, there, nice. Dude's a, dude's a huge gamer too. Like, he for the longest time he was interested in making a Dead Space movie. Which, man, that would have been something to see. Wow. Huh. Yeah, I thought about that earlier. Um, I mean, like a few days ago, how. I think video games are going to be increasingly popular in nursing homes. <laughs> really? That's not yeah. a logical conclusion, but not one that I would have thought about right off the bat. Yeah, I'm calling it. Yeah. I mean, Chandler Williams, everyone, our generation's Nostradamus. Okay. I kid. I kid. Nostradamus was mostly full of shit anyway. Yeah. Just I'll like explain me. that reference to you later. If need be, of course. R.I.P. the chess wizard. R.I.P. I was just about to get to that. Holy shit, you read my mind. <laughs> I think that was a... God. I'm sure that was a bigger deal, like, when he poured his drink in the chess wizard, just because, Especially like... Especially considering how this wasn't too far from the age where just, like, one computer that barely has the processing power of a device that fits in my pocket took up entire rooms and was, like, expensive as hell. Yeah, so I'm sure that must have hit uh, so much harder. Oops. Back then, yeah, that, it just—it's a—it's a very blunt force way of introducing that he just does not care, and in a way that's genuinely cool. Like I know Carpenter's other, right, other collaborations with Kurt Russell have mostly been piss takes on action heroes, like even Escape from New York. Snake Plissken is still basically just a, right, a Clint Eastwood impression. Impression. I think a lot of people forget how goofy that movie is in spots, and I mean good goofy. I love Escape from New York's in my top twenty or in twenty, so I'd never say a bad word about that. Nice, nice. I guess like a modern day um, interpretation of that, uh, or reinterpretation of that gag when he, you know, pours a drink on the computer, be like throwing your MacBook like out of the window or something. 
And I guess that was, that was also before they on. had a reliance on technology. Yeah, perhaps. And also, funny enough, that computer is the only woman in this film. I think it's Adrian Barbeau or Jamie Lee Curtis who does the voice. Yeah, yeah. I remember you pointed that out to me as we were watching it. Uh, which, like, can you do a movie like that? Can you do a movie without any females in it today? Would that be possible? Possibly. Yeah, you'd probably have to do it on the indie level. level. That's the only way I think you could actually avoid scrutiny. Yeah, or in front I of agree. the keyboard warriors of the world. <laughs> All right, like, yes. you're, you know, it's funny. If you want to see a litmus test of this, God, I wish we could have gone this episode without mentioning this, but the prequel. We, and I love Mary Elizabeth Winston. Or instead, I think she's a terrific actress, but man, she, or no, she, or she, no one involved with that was done any favors by that thing. I still don't get why anyone would have switched out the amazing practical effects they ha had right in the original cut with that CG, especially considering how that CG, it looked bad at the time. Was Carpenter on board with it? Nope, he wasn't involved at all. Ah. Uh. He, I don't think he, there's a single one of the remakes he's done, right, that's, of his films that's about, like, I think the closest we gotten was him giving Rob Zombie his blessing. The first one, at least. Ah. Uh. Which is a thorny subject from number. Like, I think the only good Carpenter remake I can think of off the top of my head is probably Assault on Precinct 13, which, funny enough, it makes, right, which uh, was directed by the guy who ended up doing the Purge movies, which makes so much sense considering how, like him or not, those those sequels pretty much are just straight up John Carpenter riffs. Like, mostly like the Assault on Precinct 13, Escape from New York era John Carpenter. Or like, I mean, full on, like, exploitation action movie mode. Yeah, you see, I mean, the, the, that's just not a genre that I gravitate towards, and uh, so I'm, I'm not entirely familiar with it, but, you know. I think there are action movies done with intelligence, okay. like, especially Assault on Precinct 13 and Escape from New York, which, Precinct 13 one of my favorite, is one of my favorite movies of the 70s, because it was shocking then, and it's still shocking in spots now. Now, it legitimately, it's, inten I mean, it's intense, it's entertaining, there's, an, there's a couple good characters you can latch on to. It's just really a white-hot blast of rage. Jotting it down right now. Do we get to the dogs yet? Because I don't think I don't we think mentioned we have. it has some superb doggo acting as you or as a as I wrote down your in your uh, esteemed observation. Good dog action. Chandler Williams. Slap that on the blue right next to the time this gets reissued. I did I did say that, yeah. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm but... just joshing you, man. I I agree. I just think the phrase good dog action out of context <laughs> sounds really funny. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um, yeah, I, I admire how they got the dogs to act so well. And uh, I mean, in the commentary, they said how, um, like in the scene where the dog goes into the like the kennel room, um, a dummy is used. And he, uh, Carpenter points that out. But uh, I mean, still yep, prior to like, that, that's the dummy. That's the real one. That's the dummy. That's the real one. Dummy, real one. And how he like gets into a rhythm for a second. It's really funny. Yeah, but um, it I mean, like, one of the, again. This commentary track is amazing because it makes even the scenes that always manage to upset me still make me giggle. No, but I mean, like in the in the shot where the dog's walking down the hall, and you can tell that the dog is the thing. I mean, like that that is so well done. Or the um, one like, where he's like waiting outside the doorway, and the dude's shadow is just sitting there, right there on the bag. Which one of my favorite shots in the whole movie? Just oh, such a good heart or like suspense image. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, like to so get a dog to... without showing too much. Just to get a dog to hesitate like that and um yep. like all those little beats in one continuous shot yeah 
Very impressive. I believe the dog's name was Jet. I'm sure they said it. Um, yeah, it was Jet. I remember. Good boy. Hope he, he has a good place in doggy heaven. R.I.P. Good dog. And speaking of good dogs, that reminds me I of a story I told. Was uh, one of the funniest bits of uh, an alternate name crediting and like, hey, I'd, I want to take my name off the movie was with the Tarzan movie Greystoke in the 80s, which was written by the guy who, made, who uh, wrote Chinatown. The original draft was at least. It got changed so much throughout production that Robert Town was so displeased that like, take my name off it and replace it with P.H. Vazic. For the record, P.H. Vazic was his sheepdog. And he got nominated for an Oscar. Uh, under P.H. Vazic. They nominated a dog for an Oscar. Yes, that, that did happen. I believe you. <laughs> I... Man, some stuff is, there are times where reality really is just stranger than fiction. Pose law in full effect, everyone. At least the thing is better than Greystoke, I'll say that. Yeah, I'm I'm oh. I don't really have that much of a desire to watch it, but uh moving on, yeah. they talk a lot about like uh, it. it's, yeah. it's kinda dull. It's I mean in the commentary they talk about a lot about the helicopters, which I mean oh, like yeah. I didn't God. I don't know, I I, I, I have a new appreciation like for like, shooting with helicopters, I guess, uh, after just hearing them talk about it and the difficulties. and I, for, I know everyone talks about this movement in terms of claustrophobic, but those early bits set up, like, amongst, like, the vast regions of snow are legitimately amazing. Like, just how big and wide open it is. It also serves to show, and ironically, the more big and wide open it is, it more, the more trapped the characters feel. Yeah. Hence yeah. why I think the Arctic is right, in the best location possible for this. But yeah, they even said Kurt Ross actually flew some of the helicopter, some of the helicopter um, but sequences. not without assistance, of course. I mean, yeah, again, yeah. Again, but still, that's, that's, that's were... cool and impressive, I think. Oh, yeah, like, like it's, the weird thing is, like, we had to, like, flip around the controls and whatnot, so technically, that's not how a helicopter operates, but it looks like that on screen, so. I mean, I didn't, I didn't notice. <laughs> Neither did I, because I don't, I know dick about helicopters. Yeah. Explosions. And like they said, one of the, uh, one of, like, the Norwegian... Oh the practical and pyrotechnics near the end. Wow. Yeah, they, they might... said like one of the Norwegian um, helicopter pilots was like willing to blow up his own helicopter for money. <laughs> That's amazing. That's a... Yeah. Like, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> I just love to hear like, like the, all the like inside jokes and stories from the set, um, particularly like you know almost forty years after it happened. Uh, I really appreciate. it. And this is a commentary Triton spent around for at least a decade, if I'm not mistaken, because the Blu-ray I had was from like 2008, and incidentally, uh, one of the things I I've noticed over the last few months is like if you want to know how old like a DVD or VHS or Blu-ray is, look at or what the MPAA logo looks like, because of how many changes that's went through. Like it's subtle changes, but it's still noticeable. Yeah, I remember you uh, pointing that out to me as well. It's, or if they point out, like, interactive menus as a bonus feature instead of, like, a baseline standard that everything is expected to have. Uh, that's true, that's true. Uh, the late 90s. <laughs> what a strange, strange time. And, it, and speaking of wit, or in those uh, big, big uh, wide-open shots, uh, it's weird to me that more horror movies are set in, like, the, in, like, the cold of the wilt. Or it's like... Yeah, not even Alaska, which I think the only other one that exists, which I know this is set in the Arctic, but it's shot more in half in Alaska anyway. 
so it count. I guess that counts. Was uh, Thirty Days of Night, which really uses its setting well. Not a perfect mo- movie, but it does get a lot right in the cult. God, that is a movie that looks freezing. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other ones, but uh... weird that the cold isn't used more often, though, isn't it? Like, I feel crazy for pointing that out. Like, Maybe The Shining. Like, I mean, like, generally, like, Alaska specifically, though, considering how, again, it's very closed off from the rest of for the rest of the country, let alone the rest of the world, where in the world, it's always either bringing bright out or intensely dark at now because of how close it is to certain par- parts of the earth. And, yeah, that feels like a like a missed or an, an opportunity that's just r- r- screaming for people, like, yes, take advantage of this. I guess the closest thing to this isn't even a horror movie. It's uh, Insomnia, I guess. The Christopher Nolan version, not the original. Okay, yeah, that is a dominant. Or that's set in Alaska. Yeah, you're right. Yep. Like it's a that, pretty good film. Advantage of the location, specifically. Like, the weird... Because there are things... Like, you can do this. Like, play... I've just never been to Alaska, so I... I don't know, I don't have the... Uh, I'm, I'm not even all that attached to it. Like, I've been there... I've been there once or twice when I was younger. younger. It's lovely. I mean, lovely, but not my place on Earth, but... Still, it's an amazing location. I feel like you could do a lot with it. You just no- need to decide what. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love to go there. Uh, I haven't really traveled that much, but uh, I'd love to go to Alaska and uh, maybe be inspired to write something. Gla- I think I passed one of the glaciers. They shot it when I was on a cruise when, when I was a teenager. I might might have. I'm not entirely sure. I know I was definitely in the town where they shot that sequence in, though. Was it uh, Juno, did they say? Yeah, Juno. Nice. Anyway, as if we already didn't guess, we like this movie a lot. If you haven't seen it, why are you listening to this? Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. I mean, the, the practical effects, we could talk so much now about that. Uh, so much, and again, this movie is like the wormiest can of worms we can talk about. You can talk about John Carpenter's amazing. You can talk about how Kurt Russell... Will constantly like challenge his idea of a grizzled badass on screen. You can talk about worrying about the music. You can talk about the way it's used. It's there's just so much you could go on and on and on and on about. It's the best. Any ambiguous ambiguous ending, I love Which, so much. You know what feels a fitting a note in any. What is your interpretation of the ending? I I think that they did kill the thing and then they froze. Which the, I guess is yeah, the happiest froze. ending. Relatively could, speaking, it's still yeah. weak, but at least it gives you like a sense of finality. Like, okay, the rest of the world is safe, even if they kind of have to go down. They have to get ready do the whole captain going down with the ship montage. Well, not montage. But you get the idea. I'm bad with words today. And I love the reveal that uh, I I forgot the character's name, but the other guy uh, he was still alive after the explosion, and he like came to sit down next to Kurt Russell. Richard, not Keith, not Keith Richard, Keith, Keith David. Richard. Ugh. Yeah, no. Yeah. Which, by the way, it, I was surprised to find out this this was his first movie. I think I think it's either that or he has a cameo in the background of the uh, Disco Godfather. Um, Disco the, Godfather. Like, yeah, it's from the guy who made Dolomite. Yes, the original. Oh, okay, okay, the original yeah. Dolomite. Yep. Dolomite uh, is my name. Was good. I will agree. I will wholeheartedly agree with that. No. Or in Dolomite, what is my name is fantastic. Yeah. Anyway, way well, yeah, go watch some John Carpenter movies. If you ha- I mean, if you've seen this one already, watch it again. Yeah, and get, give the 
man, I want to do a commentary track one of these days if I ever get to make a feature and do it with another person. No, because it's fun to have that kind of bouncing off or off back and forth. Yeah, another person that was on the set or closer to the yep. close to the film, or at least close enough enough, or like even someone appreciates it. Like I love the commentary that uh, John did with Steven Soderbergh for Point Blank, where he talk like talking about the someone who made the the film back then. Right, that was someone who was greatly influenced by the film and that film in the now. It's a really interesting clash of perspectives. Interesting. I'll check that out. That and hearing how John Borman talked about sixties color was just kind of, yeah. That that I just ate that up. Nice. Sixties Technicolor is the best, man. Yeah, I've been listening to excerpts of uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's commentary of Boogie Nights um, that I've just found on YouTube, but I need to just go through and listen to the whole. Um, track stuff that was made by people who were shockingly young at the time. Yes, of course. I, mean, I was like 26 when that came out. That's I think, so inspiring and just like daunting as well. That confident with that much skill, spinning so many plates at once, it's just uh, it's so good. And I think he fall out with an even more densely complicated Magnolia. Yeah, Magnolia, which I I would love to cover sometimes because it's it's, it's 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 in my top. I'd be open to it. I'd be open. It's in my top ten, maybe top five. I'm probably gonna watch it again before it leaves HBO Max at the end of the month. Yeah, I have a Blu-ray I could lend you. Uh, if you can get to it. I found it funny that uh, Patton Oswalt has a cameo in the opening scene. Oh, does he really? Yeah, he's. I think like the card counting guy at the casino. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the one in the. Uh, he gets like thrown out of the the plane. Yeah. Ah. Uh, uh, good times. I love that film so much. It's it's on the it's one of my four in my letterbox, um, like poster. Your, t- your top four. Yeah, I, I like changing changing my top four like regularly. Like I I do like like clusters of posters together that I think fit the month's aesthetic. Like I do like summertime mo- or in movies in July July, and I do like really cold like orange steel blue looking posters in January. Right, and when I I'm just like a sucker for that kind of thing. Yeah, I respect that. Anyway. One last thing I wanted to point out, which this is a theory I heard. Thank first off, thank you to Junk Food Cinema for, for uh, pointing this out to me. Me was uh, there's a theory going around that you if you pay attention like really close attention to the lighting in each scene, you'll know who's the thing and who isn't because or someone has I think it's a reflection in the eye or like a certain color of light, but anyone who isn't the thing doesn't have that. And I'm like, huh. That's an That's awesome detail. I'm like, shit, I've seen this movie at least five times now, and I still didn't notice that. The lighting is exceptional. Dean Cundey, his name, he's a legend for a reason. And one, one of the all-time great DPs, and his work here is genuinely astounding. And I think... Like, it, it's over the top in the best way possible. God, the, the, the way they contrast, like, the flares against, like, that's, those saturated blues, it's a, the best. Ugh. Yes. And then they go hard on the lighting, like even when it's not super necessary, like when they're playing pool um, prior to like everything yeah, going down. Cool because if you can look cool, make it look cool. Yes, exactly. And I, I, I love it. That was that was one of the um, one of my favorite parts about this film was just like the the really bold lighting. I'm not sure if I brought this up in the Manhunter episode or not, but what, I think this is a, a movie that, yeah, it's an obvious example of which, but I'm going to go, but it's a good, obvious for a reason. This is why I find ideas and just or, and themes way or, and something that's like challenges me intellectually while still being or, something like or, enjoyable on a base level to be the best kind of horror. That, that's my platonic ideal. Something I get that. that like, I get that. Or, because a lot, if you can put like a face or, a, or even a sound in some case, 
cases, it, I mean, it becomes like, okay, now I can familiarize myself scared. But the thing, not only is it always changing, but the, the idea of this thing being able to take over the entire human population in as short a period as three years, and, and the fact that we probably would just be too busy arguing amongst ourselves to actually take care of it, that is still scary cool stuff. That's that's how I felt felt about the witch, like how that 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 film just really scared the crap out of me at the time. I the, better. the witch just I, left me cold, honestly. I, I I love them both, but I mean, the witch at the time I saw it, which was in high school, like whenever it came out, it it was the scariest film I've ever seen because you know you can't distinguish like who is the devil, and I mean it's the same concept as this as uh you know what the thing plays with, but you ever seen the Crucible or read the Crucible, the Arthur Miller play? I had to read it and then watched it for school, actually. I was going to say, I, I feel like Daniel Day-Lewis. Like yeah, like yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis. He, he's just awesome everywhere. Is that the everywhere. one with the writer, too? Because I think there's been a few adaptations. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I enjoyed the it. Thing, everyone. The Thing. Check it out. Watch the, the commentary. Thing, the ultimate in alien terror. Or This movie has not one, but two of the greatest horror taglines ever. The ultimate alien terror and man is the warmest place to hide. Would you consider this better than Alien, or do you like it better than Alien? I like Aliens better in the better movie, in my opinion, but I still really love Chip on this. Yeah, I I'd say on the whole, as much as I love that '70s sci-fi aesthetic with CRT monitors and stuff, hell, I'm making my senior thesis based around that whole look. I'm looking forward look, to this. Is a, mo- a better uh, looking movie, in my opinion. Yeah. Now I'm I'm looking forward to being a part of that project. It's gonna be awesome. I am I am too. I, I mean, trust me. We'll all will be revealed in due time. But trust me, I got something wild up my sleeve for this. Yes, same here. I uh, have a proof of concept for a feature that I'm working on in the works, and uh, we just excited. filmed a promotional video. And so uh, I will, you know, name drop that on here. Quote like right. wink, wink. Uh, Eventually, all in due comes. time. You can't give away yes. too much up front, you know. Yeah, just a little little peep show. But yeah, check out the thing. Oh my, I didn't know your taste for that lurid, Chandler. <laughs> <laughs> Sneak peek. I can... <laughs> it's an adult film. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, an experimental just... film. Oh, so you mean a porno? It's not a porno. <laughs> just I kidding. It's nice not. Guys so... I love the nice guys so fucking much that <laughs> speaking of movies that are endlessly quotable. I actually have not seen it. It would be a good one for us to cover, I think. May... I'm not sure if it's weird that. No, like, we'll do Shane Black at some point, but I gotta be really, I wanna be really selective of which. I'd say it's, like, a hidden gem from what I've heard about it. Yeah, but, it, but is it quite, like, odd or, like, re- because it I is mean, very no. much a standard genre exercise, but it's just, like, refined to, like, a, or in like a pol- reflective polish, like, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I think, would be more likely for us to cover, considering how it's unconventional structure. Yeah, I've heard good things about it um, as well, but. I love Shane Black is one of my heroes as a screenwriter. But that is a conversation for another day. Anyway, this was a fun episode. Next month, we're going to be covering some Walter Hill and some John Waters since February is the month of love, after all. Stay tuned for what entails for that. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you want to follow us on Box, it's just Jack Rourke and Chandler Williams, respectively. If you want to follow the podcast on Twitter, it's at Warp Celluloid. And if you want... Or if you want to listen to past episodes, we're on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever fire podcasts are heard, sold. I'm trying to think of like the play on those old like bookstore commercials. Wherever like, books are sold, yeah. Yeah. Wherever podcasts are distributed. Her, her, 
distributed, like, expunged into your ear holes. Oh, God, that is such a horrible sentence. Fuck, fuck, fuck. That was was a lot, dude. (laughs) (laughs) This movie is a lot. This show is a lot. We've been doing this for a year now. Yes, we have. Wow. Man, where does the time go? Anyway. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. We really appreciate it. We have a lot of fun doing this. See you in a couple weeks, everyone. Stay groovy. Thank you.